Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. important to take the correct medication for whatever it is that's ailing you. No doubt most of you have seen the classic film, It's a Wonderful Life. At least I hope most of you have. By show of hands, if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, good. Very good. There'd be problems if you didn't. Now, if you remember the movie, there's a scene in the early part of, uh, of the movie that shows young George Bailey working for the pharmacist, the, the druggist, uh, Mr. Gower. And Mr. Gower sends young George to take a life-saving medication to a child suffering with diphtheria. But Mr. Gower makes a huge mistake in filling the prescription. See, we see that he was uh, drinking a lot, um, and in his drunken state, um, he accidentally put the wrong uh, medical powder um, in those capsules. Um, he'd just received news that his son had died, so hence the, the drinking. So, so young George tries to tell Mr. Gower of the mistake he made, but the drunken pharmacist demands that George takes the medication to the family. And George doesn't know what to do, so he finally returns back to the pharmacist with the medication still in hand. And if you remember what happens next, you remember that Mr. Gower gets uh, really angry, uh, smacks him upside the head, a few times until George finally speaks up. And when he does speak up, he says, Mr. Gower, don't you know what you're doing? You put something wrong in these capsules. Just look and see what you did. It's poison. I tell you, it's poison. So as we continue our study in the book of Galatians, it's as if the Apostle Paul plays the role of young George Bailey telling the Galatians, don't listen to the false gospel. It's poison. I tell you, it's poison. See, rather than medicine for our body, though, Paul is concerned about making sure the Galatians were taking the right medication, the right medicine for their spirits. He's laser-focused on trying to communicate that the gospel he's been preaching is the one true gospel that brings eternal life to the spirit and that brings healing to the soul. He wants to make sure that the Galatians have God's prescription for eternal life. See, the problem he's facing, if you remember from the previous couple weeks, is that there are uh, some people going around who are trying to tamper with the gospel. They're trying to tamper with that prescription. These people, the, the Judaizers, they were trying to take the message of the gospel of grace alone, and they were trying to add works to it. It, 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 was, it was grace alone, and they wanted to add grace and works. And this is why we see Paul insisting that the message he proclaimed is the only gospel. See, he gave the Galatians 
the right medication to begin with, but he sees how others are trying to, uh, to alter that pure remedy by making it poisonous and by substituting it. And it's as if Paul is shouting, don't take that medicine. It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. And this is why Paul takes the first two chapters in Galatians to defend his ministry as an apostle and to argue that, that the very source, the origin of the gospel that he got came from God himself. He made the case in Galatians chapter 1 that Jesus is all we need, that our validation comes from Christ alone, our salvation comes from Christ alone, and our sanctification comes from Christ alone. Paul then holds up his life as a testimony to the saving grace of God, that his life can only be explained by Jesus. And as if those arguments aren't enough to keep the Galatians from believing this false gospel, he goes on then in the first half of Galatians chapter 2 to make sure they understand that there is only one true gospel. And that's the truth that we're confronted with today. There is only one true gospel. That's it. Jesus Christ is God incarnate who lived a sinless life, died for our sins, was buried and was raised from the dead. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the pure unadulterated message of the gospel. That's the content of the gospel. Salvation is given by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is only one true gospel, and this is it. So as we make our way through Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to draw out from the text a few different gospel truths, and then we're going to see how those truths should apply to us, how they impact our lives. So here's the first truth that we, th- that we come face-to-face with, and that's this. The gospel brings purpose. That simple. The gospel brings purpose. So as we jump into the second chapter of Galatians, we see a faithful Paul who was so certain of his apostleship and he was so certain of the gospel that he received from Jesus that it gave him laser-focused purpose of bringing that gospel to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. So jumping in to verse 1. Then, after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So now Paul uh, begins by explaining uh, to the churches in Galatia that 14 years after Jesus radically transformed his life as he was on the road to Damascus, he makes a second trip to Jerusalem. The first trip to Jerusalem, he spent about two weeks there, and 14 years goes by, and uh, now he's uh, making his second trip to Jerusalem. And then he mentions this trip to Jerusalem, because remember, the Judaizers were trying to create a wedge between Paul and the believers in the different churches. They were trying to promote their false version of the gospel. You could just picture them deceitfully just going around essentially saying, you know, the real apostles are in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John, those are the real apostles. This guy, Paul, he didn't come from them. He doesn't have the the whole message of the gospel. His is just by grace alone. There's nothing Jewish in that. That can't be the right gospel. He shouldn't be trusted. So now God sends Paul to Jerusalem, and with him he brings two of his ministry partners, Barnabas and Titus, who we're introduced to. Now Barnabas, if you don't know who that is, Barnabas was a Jew who had been converted in Jerusalem. He was uh, probably one of the earlier Jewish converts, and he was one of the first Um, Christian missionaries, and he was likely uh, very well known by most of the believers 
In fact, Barnabas was the one who, who enlisted Paul some years earlier um, to help him in Antioch. Barnabas was leading church in Antioch, and he needed help, and he heard about this guy Paul, so he asked for Paul help. And Paul comes and helps him, and the, you know, what you see then through Acts is that Paul and Barnabas form um, this very close relationship. They're, they become friends, and they're ministry partners. So that's Barnabas. Now Titus is the other one with Paul. Now Titus, on the other hand, isn't a Jew. Titus is a Gentile. He's Greek. He was a young man who got saved through Paul's preaching and his first missionary journey. And he'd later assist Paul by providing leadership uh, in some of the most difficult churches in the area. But it's not a simple accident here that Paul's bringing Titus along with him to Jerusalem. See, if you remember, the, the Judaizers taught that salvation was a combination of Jesus and the law. Jesus and works. Jesus and Moses. They believed that real Christians were the ones who first believed in Jesus, then got circumcised. After all, circumcision was the sign um, of a person being under the old covenant, under the law of Moses. And these legalistic Judaizers weren't about to toss out their Jewish laws and their Jewish rituals. So since Titus wasn't born a Jew, he obviously wouldn't have undergone the ritual of circumcision, and he wouldn't have had any interest in, in, in bothering or committing himself to the law of Moses. This would have really, though, upset the Judaizers, because they thought that's what a true convert should do. They need to also be Jewish. They were demanding that Titus be circumcised. And you could just picture Titus kind of standing over there being like, no, nah, bro, I'm good. Keep your distance. Can you see what Paul is doing then? See, he's bringing Titus with him to Jerusalem to present Titus as a prime example of God saving people by grace alone through faith alone. No added religion, no added rituals, no added rules. This is the gospel Paul received from Jesus, and it's the very same gospel that Paul taught throughout the Gentile world. Verse 2. He says, I went up, meaning to Jerusalem, because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So now Paul fills us in and lets us know that he went to Jerusalem in obedience to God. God revealed it to him. God said, go to Jerusalem. So he goes. Paul knew that if men were allowed to add rituals or works to the gospel, then he and his ministry would have been in vain. If men were allowed to do this, that means that every guy who trusted in Christ uh, up to that point and every guy who would eventually trust in Christ even up until now would have to undergo the ritual of circumcision. Can you imagine every church having a little a surgical outpatient center for when people responded to the gospel? That, that would just be crazy. You said yes to Jesus, great. Take a number, have a seat, and we'll seal your salvation with some scissors. That, that's absurd. That makes no sense to us, 2,000 years removed from this. But you have to understand that when the new covenant was inaugurated, it took years to ensure that, that the grace of the new covenant wouldn't be confused with the law of the old covenant. And it took some time uh, for, for the Jews to actually grasp that the law was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. They weren't bound to the law anymore. They were set free from the law. And then let's also realize that this probably wasn't an easy visit for Paul to be making. See, he was totally committed in his mission 
to the Gentiles. His, his passion to share the good news with non-Jews was, was burning inside him with such passion. And it's what gave him such clear focus, such clear purpose. Paul didn't want to compromise on the gospel he received from Jesus. And he also didn't want to be antagonistic to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So he gets to Jerusalem. He meets with the church leaders privately. He tells them about the gospel he received. He tells them about the gospel he's been preaching. And then he presents Titus as his proof of God's gracious work among the Gentiles. Then we come to verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. See what relief must have come over Paul when the apostles agreed that Titus was saved regardless of his circumcision. Which means that the apostles agreed with Paul that this wasn't a necessary component of the gospel. And this reinforces Paul's point that there is only one true gospel and this gospel is relevant for every single culture. See, because Paul knew that the gospel he was preaching was the only gospel powerful enough to save humans, you see him in Scripture living his life with such purpose. The gospel brought him purpose. He proclaimed Jesus to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the Romans. He proclaimed Jesus to men, to women, to children. He proclaimed Jesus to the lowliest of slaves and to the highest government officials. He proclaimed Jesus whether he was in a synagogue, whether he was in a living room, whether he was in a prison cell, whether he was in the marketplace, or whether he was a board a ship. Everywhere he went, he made it a point to make Jesus known. That was his purpose. The gospel brought Paul purpose. And it brings us purpose. So what's our responsibility then to this truth? Well, here's the first application. That we must be faithful to follow the vital mission of the gospel. We must be faithful to follow the vital mission of the gospel. Now what do I mean when I say mission? What is the mission of the gospel. Well, our brains go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Matthew 28 verses, uh, listen to 19 and 20. This is the mission that Jesus charged us with. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, understand this mission wasn't reserved just for the first century apostles. This mission wasn't reserved uh, just for preachers, just for church leaders. It's not a mission for a select few Christians. This is the mission of every single person who professes faith in Christ. That's the mission. If we've been transformed by the gospel, we ought to then take the gospel wherever we go, whenever we go there, to whomever we go. That's what it means to live on mission. We are missionaries. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever seen yourself as a missionary? That God has called you purposely and placed you where you are in life to be a missionary. Don't think that missionaries are just those who go to foreign nations. You could be a missionary wherever you go. You're not just a student. If you're a student, you're a missionary sent by God to bring the gospel to your other students. You're not just a medical professional. You're a missionary sent by God to bring the gospel to hospitals or to, to your practice. You're not just a police officer. You're a missionary sent by God to bring the gospel to criminals and to your fellow cops. You're not just a stay-at-home mom. 
You're a missionary sent by God to bring up your children as little missionaries. Whether you're at work, whether you're at the movie theater, whether you're at the, the golf house, whether you're at the coffee shop, the barber shop, God calls you to be faithful to, vo- to follow the vital mission of the gospel to make disciples of all kinds of people in all kinds of places. There's this book called Great Commission, Great Compassion. And in his book, um, global missions expert Paul Borthwick shares the following story to remind us how God's mission can come from anywhere and be to anyone. Listen to this story that he writes about. He says, I stopped into a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I noticed Peter working the counter. I recognized him from our young adult ministry at church, and I knew he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. I greeted him and managed to get him to break free for coffee together. What are you doing here? I asked, knowing that Harvard master's degree students don't usually aspire to work the counter at McDonald's. Well, he explained, I graduated in May, so I went four months without finding a job. So I said to myself, I need some income to pay bills. So this is where I've ended up at least for now. I'm sorry to hear that. It must be hard, I replied. But Peter cut me off. He said, no, don't be sorry. God has me here. This place is giving me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? He laughed and so did I. Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan. But his mindset of living as a sent person shaped the way he looked at his circumstances and at the people around him. Church, we've been sent by God to shine the light of the gospel into our dark world. So let's be faithful to follow the mission of the gospel. And not only does the gospel bring purpose... But because we see the Apostle Paul doing everything he can to make sure the message of the gospel remains pure, we also learn that the gospel brings truth. And that's our second gospel truth. The gospel brings truth. It is truth. Look at verse 4. Paul goes on, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So, so here, Paul's elaborating on just how sneaky these Judaizers were in trying to discredit him and Titus and Barnabas and the gospel they preached. See, notice the language he uses. He says they were secretly brought in. They slipped in as spies, hoping to enslave us. See, Paul here is using uh, military metaphor to indicate the, the, the provocative and, and militant nature of the evil that he was fighting. See, Paul sees himself in the middle of a life-and-death battle with the priceless treasure of the gospel of grace on the line, which is why Paul and his ministry partners refused to yield to their demands. Look at verse 5. He says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, the survival of the truth of the gospel was at stake, and Paul wasn't willing to even give an inch to anyone who might want to distort its truth. And make no mistake, for the last 2,000 years, people have continued to try and alter the truth of the gospel. 
Which leads us then to our second point of application. And that's that we're to be diligent to defend the pure message of the gospel. To be diligent to defend the pure message of the gospel. See, since there is only one true gospel, and since people have been trying to distort that gospel for 2,000 years, we can't shy away from defending its message of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the hill that we should fight for. That's the hill that we should be willing to die on. The gospel of Jesus. See, in a world filled of counterfeit and false gospels, we must take a stand on the one true gospel. Because as false and counterfeit as other gospels might be, make no mistake that the most deceptive ones, the most deceptive counterfeits, are those that are actually very close to the truth without actually being true. Last week, um, I was in uh, Tennessee, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, at a um, spiritual um, a Christian counseling workshop, actually one that we'll be bringing uh, up this way in a, a month or so. You'll hear about that. Um, but as I was driving down there, you drive through the, the D.C., uh, Maryland area. Lots of you have probably driven that way before, and I love driving at night. Uh, you get to just cruise through, no traffic, no slow drivers in the left lane. It's great. Now, if you've been that, down that way, though, at night, you notice as you're driving down that way, all of a sudden, you come across, you come around a bend, and there's a sudden appearance of, of this huge, beautiful, gothic cathedral that's seemingly bathed in heavenly light. It's adorned with an angel. It has these lofty spires all throughout. And to all appearances, it seems like a, a pretty impressive Christian building. However, this tabernacle was actually built in 1974 by the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. But one of the things you see missing from the building is a cross. There can't be, there's not a cross found anywhere on that building. No cross in the architecture. See, the doctrinal differences between Mormonism and biblical Christianity are just as subtle, but, but they're real. And they're immensely important. See, just as their buildings bear no crosses, so the Mormon faith has no central role for the cross of Christ. Mormons will tell you that they believe in Jesus, yet they don't believe he is the only way to God. They believe things that are con even contrary to what Jesus taught. Right? They don't believe the Bible is God's final and authoritative revelation of himself to us. They don't believe in a literal heaven and hell, even though Jesus spoke much about those things. See, their gospel is not the true gospel, even though on the outside it might look very similar or it might not look dangerous, but it's poison. So our responsibility to the gospel is to be diligent to defend its truth because there is only one true gospel. There is only one gospel that has the power to save, and that's the gospel that, that proclaims Jesus Christ and that proclaims Jesus Christ alone. Nothing to be added to it, nothing to be taken away. Which means that any gospel that leaves out Christ is a phony gospel. It means that any gospel that minimizes Christ is a deceitful gospel. It means that any gospel that puts Jesus on the same level of another is a perverse gospel. We have the one true gospel, and it's our job to preserve that.
and to pass it along in all of its purity. So we must make sure that the gospel we believe and that the one that we're telling others about is in fact the one true gospel. I mean, think about it this way, right? We all have uh, junk drawers in our house. Um, I wouldn't believe you if you said you didn't. Maybe yours is in the bedroom. Maybe it's in your office. Maybe it's in your kitchen. Um, or if you're disorganized like me, every single one of your drawers is a junk drawer. <laughs> and you know how these things work, right? With, with a junk drawer, right? There, there are no rules to the junk drawer. Anything can go in there, anything you want. Batteries, receipts, bug spray, gift cards, uh, broken pieces of toys, lighters, pens, anything. Even if you've got a space for it somewhere else, you're too lazy to go to the garage and put it in the box or throw it in the junk drawer. <laughs> that was a confession, by the way. <laughs> See, what happens, though, with your junk drawer is similar to, to, to the way people treat the gospel. There are preachers, there are, there are priests, there are churches, there are TV personalities, there are many others who treat the gospel like a junk drawer. It's just an ambiguous thing that has uh, no rhyme or reason to it. You can turn it into whatever you want. You can define it however you want. As a result, we have a bunch of counterfeit gospels. There's the religious gospel that teaches that we're saved by our works. Right? If you say this thing, if you perform this act, if you do this ritual or dress this way, then Jesus will save you. But that doesn't sound like the true gospel, does it? See, we know that the true gospel teaches that salvation is Jesus plus nothing. That's the gospel. Then there's the moralistic gospel that tells people that we're saved by being morally upright people. If you're a good person, if you're a decent person, if you haven't caused harm to others, then God's going to let you into his kingdom. He's going to weigh the good and the bad, and then he'll let you in. But we know from the scriptures that that is not the true gospel. The true gospel teaches that salvation is for sinners because there are no good people. No one is truly good except God himself. So salvation comes not because we are good. Salvation comes because he is good. Amen. And then there's the prosperity gospel. That teaches that we're saved by Jesus, but we're saved by Jesus for the purpose of receiving some material benefits, some material blessings. Right? If you obey the prescription for faith that the preacher is asking for you, then God will pour out his favor on you. He'll make you healthy. He'll make you wealthy. He'll make you happy. But we know that the true gospel teaches that salvation is for the person who comes to Jesus in helpless and humble dependence, not because of the material blessings they can receive from him, but because they recognize they are a wretch. They recognize they are a sinner. They recognize they need a savior to pull them out of the miry pit of their sin and to give them new life. That's the true gospel. See, contrary to all the poisonous counterfeit gospels. The one true gospel is all about and only about the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ and his marvelous work on our behalf. Jesus is central to the gospel. He is at the heart of it all. In all the history of the religions of the world, there is no person like Jesus. No one is equal to him. There is no one that can even be remotely compared to him. Not Abraham, not Moses, not King David, not any of the apostles, not Muhammad, not the Pope, not Donald Trump. No one. 
Jesus is the central figure of all history, of all time, of all faith. He is the name above all names. He's the king above all kings. He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can give us purpose. He's the only one who can recreate us. He's the only one who can give us hope. He's the only one who can give us peace. He's the only one who can satisfy us. Amen? And he is the only one who can promise us a glorious future in his presence, free from the pain and suffering of this world. In the meantime, though, until God calls his gospel people home or until Jesus returns to take us home with him, we need to be diligent to defend the pure message of the gospel. The gospel brings purpose. And the gospel brings truth. Now, after Paul makes it clear that he refused to back down from, the, from preserving the, the message of the gospel, he then goes on to further illustrate that his gospel was the same gospel being preached by the leaders in Jerusalem. Though Paul and his companions were sharing the gospel in different countries to different cultures than the apostles in Jerusalem were, they were united. They were united in purpose because they shared the same foundation. The foundation being that salvation comes to people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right? Say that with me. Say, the salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now I get to say amen to you. Amen. 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 So in the last half of this section, we see just how unifying the gospel of grace really is. So here's the third gospel truth. And that's that the gospel brings unity. The gospel brings unity. Look at verse 6. He says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So now Paul's emphasizing here that the church leaders wholeheartedly agreed that nothing needed to be added or taken away from the gospel that Paul was preaching because it was the same gospel they were preaching. It was the one true gospel. The gospel originates with God, and it's God who calls all people, all kinds of people, to minister the gospel to all kinds of people. He doesn't show partiality to his children. He calls us, and he equips us uniquely and individually. And then he goes on in verses 7 and 8. He says, On the contrary, when they, meaning the church leaders, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, worked, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So the leaders in Jerusalem didn't agree with the Judaizers as the Judaizers had hoped. On the contrary, the church leaders stood with Paul. They affirmed that his gospel was the one true gospel, and they championed his ministry. They recognized that God had called Paul to preach to the Gentiles, just as God had called Peter to preach to the Jews. Same gospel, different cultures, different expressions of that gospel. And notice here how Paul hints at the fact that just as the gospel is received by grace, the gospel is delivered by grace. It's empowered by grace Notice in verse 8, Paul says that God is the one working through him and working through Peter. That's, that's the key for, for, for our, our ministry. Anytime we do ministry, it's not us doing it. It's allowing God to do his work through us. It's his ministry. It's, we can't be bur it would be a burden if we had to do it. Let's let him do it. 
Right? So, then, so they were effective missionaries because they didn't rely on their own strength. They didn't rely on their own resources to minister, but they relied on God's power at work in and through them. Verse 9. And when James and, and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, the right hand of fellowship was uh, an expression, and it was used, it was extended to Paul and Barnabas, and it was a public declaration that their gospel was a gospel of only grace, and it was the right gospel. This act demonstrated that their doctrines were the same, that their fundamental doctrines were the same, that, that their mission was the same, and that they agreed together that God had called them to focus their attention on different people groups. And this would have finally silenced those legalistic and Judaizers who wanted to add to the gospel. But then those apostles in Jerusalem add one more thing in verse 10. Paul says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the one encouragement from the, the church leaders in Jerusalem um, to Paul and his ministry partners was that they remember the needy. They remember the poor. They remember the helpless. They remember the rejected. They remember those who are hurting. After all, it's, it's not enough to thump people over the heads with the Bible while ignoring their, their physical and their emotional needs. Well, people really think that we care about their eternal destiny if we show no concern, no compassion for their physical needs, for their emotional needs. But the opposite's true as well. See, it's not enough to just meet people's physical and emotional needs while neglecting their spiritual needs. That's called philanthropy. That's not biblical Christianity. If it's not done in Jesus' name with the purpose of bringing the message of the, of the gospel to those communities, those people, then it's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. But the point here, though, is that the gospel, though it can be expressed in many different ways, it brings unity. And that leads us to our third and final point of application, and that's this, that we're to be enthusiastic to embrace the diverse ministries of the church. Enthusiastic to embrace the diverse ministries of the gospel. See, because the gospel is based solely on grace alone and salvation is solely through faith alone, there's an incredible unity that results regardless of culture, regardless of time. The essence of the gospel always remains the same. The essence of the gospel, that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that will never change. That timeless message of the gospel will remain timeless, will remain unchangeable. That will be the gospel that we always preach here at Bayside as long as any of us have anything to do with it. So that's the essence of the gospel, unchanging. But then there's the expressions of the gospel, right? How we do church which ministries you decide to serve in, which ministries we decide to partner up with, which, where in the world we focus our, our, our efforts um, around the globe. All those adapt with time and culture. I mean, we, churches do online ministry nowadays. That wasn't something in Paul's day, but that doesn't mean it's not valid. That's just an expression of the gospel. As long as we have the essence of the gospel down, God's going to express that gospel through us in, in many different ways, in many different settings, to many different people, as long as we allow him to do that. So it's really important that we stand in unity on the essence 
of the gospel, recognizing that God calls each one of us into diverse ministries then to express that gospel. God gifted each one of us differently. He wired each one of us uniquely, and he calls each one of us personally. So the ministries that we express the gospel through will look very different from one another, but that means that one ministry isn't more important than another. I see the, the guys who have been spending time here throughout the week painting the walls so far of the church. I know that could sometimes feel like a thankless job, but you, you recognize that what they're doing is no less important than what I'm doing right here. They're allowing God to express himself through them in that particular way. This is, that's how God called them. Well, this is how God called me. We're both being obedient to God, but he shows no partiality. We're all strategic parts of bringing the gospel forward. We just played in different positions on the team. It also means, then, that we shouldn't be arguing and dividing over secondary matters that have no eternal import. It's so disappointing when we see Christians divide over music or, or eschatology, over the free will versus predestination debate, or over spiritual gifts, or over Bible translations. Now, I'm not saying these aren't important things that don't require careful thought and biblical study and, and, and whatnot, but these are not hills to die on. So let's not be guilty of majoring on the minors at the neglect of the gospel. The gospel unifies us as we express the true essence of the gospel in culturally relative and culturally sensitive ways. That is the hill that we're called to die on. The gospel, not the hill of politics, not the hill of a public school education system, none of that. It's the gospel. That's our hill. So let's be enthusiastic to embrace each other as we minister to believers within the church as we minister to unbelievers um, outside of the church and let's use the unique gifts God has given to each one of us and we do that remembering that there is only one true gospel. Would you bow your heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf Lord, thank you that you stepped down from your rightful place in heaven to, um, as, as the creator to become one of your uh, creations. Lord, you stepped down, you became a man, then you became a servant to men, and then you died the most horrific death on a cross. And the marvelous thing, Jesus, is that you did that because you love us. You did that willingly. You did that to bring us back to the Father. Lord, so thank you for going to the cross on our behalf. And thank you, Father, for pulling Jesus out of that tomb three days later, thereby declaring that Jesus does, in fact, have the authority and the, and the power to remove our sins and to give us his resurrection life. And God, for anybody in here who has not yet made that commitment to the gospel, to the pure gospel, Lord, I pray that even in these quiet moments, that that would be the prayer of their heart, Lord, that they'd come to you and that they would say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, and I'm in desperate need of a savior. Lord Jesus, save me because I can't do it by myself. 
can't work my way to you. I can't earn my way to you. Save me. I'm helpless apart from you, and I need you. And Lord, for those of us who have been believers, Lord, help us to remember that the gospel is just as needed for us. It's just as relevant for us. Um, It's just as necessary for doing ministry, Lord, because the same grace that, um, that invited us into the gospel is the same grace that works itself out in our lives as we commit to being on mission for the gospel. So, Lord, thank you that you don't call us to live this Christian life in our own strength, using our own resources, Lord, but that we could yield to you and allow the Holy Spirit to do his will through us the way you want. God, thank you for giving us your word and the confidence that we have knowing that there is only one true gospel, Lord, and let us not hide this gospel um, under anything, Lord. Let us shout it from the rooftops. Let it motivate us to share with our friends, to share with our family, to share with our coworkers, to share with every person we interact with. Lord, may people see us um, and see the Jesus in us. Thank you for who you are for us, Jesus. Thank you for your great love, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.